Oh, shit. Hang on. One more. This is our normal level of organisation, Sandra, or maybe slightly better. Uh, it'll, it'll all come out in the edit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 98th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is wending its way to you on the 7th of December 2023. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I am not Miss Batty. And in her place, you get on this episode, you get me, Sandra Bond. Hello, Sandra Bond. Hello, Sandra. I'm very excited. What have you done with Liz? Um, nothing, Brad. Why do you think I ought? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so Liz is on assignment. Um, I can't remember what she's doing. Is she on holiday? She's on a beach. She's on a beach. She's doing something. And so we have invited the lovely and talented Sandra Bond, who is the current TAF administrator for Europe, and who has been on a TAF trip, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the episode. Foreshadowing. But first, we have some letters of comment. We have letters of comment from two TAF delegates and one very knowledgeable man. Not to imply that the TAF delegates are not knowledgeable, or indeed not men, for they are. So let's start with Christopher J. Garcia, who wrote in to say... The first time that fandom changed his life was meeting James Bacon. And I think it's fair to say that everyone who's met James Bacon has had their life changed. Um. And he also says that we need more Hugo categories, which, um... Good Lord. I respect his right to be wrong. Isn't the ceremony long enough already? He makes some good arguments about why it would be a good idea to have an indie film Hugo, or a couple of indie film Hugos, saying that it would be good to have more non-professional Hugos, and obviously I can see the logic in that. But the problem the problem with this Hugo is that we haven't really worked out what that would look like, and at the moment it just kind of gives extra Hugos for things that are already getting Hugos. So, Also, there is the problem that anything indie, is it me, in any category of creativity, is immediately taken over by the corporates who sort of you know, will label it indie and put it out under a an indie studio or an indie record label's name, but in fact it's... Or an indie brewery's name, or they'll buy an indie brewery. I, I mean, there's a lot of beer out there that, that used to be independent. Cough, cough, brew dog, cough, cough. <laughs> cough, cough, little creatures, cough, cough. Cough, cough, Camden Brewery, cough, cough. Oh dear, there's a terrible, terrible cough going around this studio, isn't there? Yes, there is. But we talked about Glasgow's masking policy last week. No, we didn't, did we? But Glasgow have a masking policy now. Yes, you can go and look at it. There will be a link in the show notes. Yes, Glasgow are, are, are getting their ducks in a row incredibly early by Worldcon standards. Um, but more of this when we come to talk about fan funds, no doubt. Foreshadowing. Chris also says, still no stats from Chengdu. At this point, I'm not surprised anymore. And that is one of the most negative things I've ever heard Chris Garcia say. Mark Plummer's written to us twice. Mark Plummer has written to us twice. Mark Plummer sent us a very lovely email about Lee's emails. 
Um, I failed you listeners because I did not put Lee's emails up on the internet anywhere because I had to go to the train station the day I posted Octothorpe and I ran out of time. But rest assured, I will put them up in full. And Mark adds some more context about about the rotation policy. Uh, basically, it starts in the early 1960s and Nasvik was introduced in 1975. So he notes that the situation is more complicated than we made it seem. John, they used a time machine. Ah, they used a time machine. Obviously, 1965 was after... Doctor Who had come around, so time machines were plentiful and available. And they used a time machine disguised as a tiki Dalek, which they'd picked up from the 2014 London Worldcon. And they used that in order to travel back in time and set the rotation zones. I think I'm reading Mark Plummer's right. Oh, it all seems very wise to me. It does seem very wise. We are going to put the full... We, we just need to put some full text of our locks on the, on the website somewhere. I don't know how we do that, but we'll work it out. We should probably have a website. Three years without a website. What's to do, guys? Do we have to? The Tiki Dalek, of course, made by friend of the show Kevin Roche and Andrew Tremblay. I'm not sure they're actually friends of the show. They may just be friends of us. Um, well, what are friends, really? I don't think they listen. That seems to be drawing rather a hair's breadth distinction there. I did. I will just say Mark's letter did make me giggle quite a lot. So, um, so thank you very much, Mark. Mark did also write in, uh, he says he very much agrees with Liz's assessment, this is why we're reading it out now, so that Liz can't be too uh, pleased with herself, that the experience of the Chengdu World Conf might have been very different uh, for overseas fans and Chinese fans. I'm going to quote from him. I've seen a couple of reports commenting that Chengdu was a particularly international world con, but I wonder whether that's really true. I would guess proportionately at least it may have been the least international world con in recent history in that more than usual percentage of the members were from the host country. And then notes that Dublin had about 30% of the attending membership that were not from the USA, the UK or Ireland. So that's actually, I hadn't really thought about it like that. But it is an interesting point and I thought it was worth saying on the pot. So thank you very much, Mark. Yes. So, I mean, I think by most international, the people who are reporting may just mean the most people who don't obviously look like us, which is certainly true. Mm. Well, and there is there is definitely... There's probably an argument that it's the most different from any other world con in terms of the demographics. Although I guess I would have to cross check with Nippon because I assume that that has a claim. Finland. Mm. I don't know. Quite a lot of American and British fans at Finland. Well, quite. Yeah, but there were an awful lot of Finns at Finland. That was why they had to build new rooms. <laughs> that is true. There were a lot of Finns. But were there more Chinese at Chengdu than there were Finns in Helsinki? Yes, there were. There were an enormous number of Chinese in, in Chengdu, I believe. They think they're the, they've, they've claimed to be the largest world con ever. Well, such was my impression, but what do I know? I am but an egg. <laughs> I think you're a good egg. Oh, John, bless you, sir. <laughs> and then finally, we heard from TAF delegate Kurt Phillips. Kurt says that he thinks there are already too many Hugos and he shares some of our con concerns about the goings-on at the business meetings in Chengdu. He hopes that they get voted down at Glasgow. But he did say that our book recommendations sound interesting, and he plans to pick up a copy of Goliath and a copy of Moon. He says, although he usually allows his ears to go numb whenever we talk about games, um, so Kurt and Mark could have a little support group, it sounds like, 
Something about my review of Moon broke through, and since there is a gaming store where he lives, he's going to go and see if they have it and see if someone there might play it with him if they do. So, Kurt, report back. Let us know how you found it. We have heard through Securitas Roots that some people might have had trouble tracking down Moon after the last episode, and helpfully, John put a link in the show notes to the Board Game Geek link for it so that you can see a lot more about it and probably where to get it, though not necessarily where to get it. There are more that there's more than one game called Moon because it's one of those simple words. Yes. But there's only one website called Board Game Geek so far as I'm aware. So Yes, and we have mentioned Board Game Geek before, I'm sure, but it is the the one many times, many, many times one critical website for board gamers. There's nothing like it. It's like Ravelry for knitters. If you are still struggling to locate a copy, then the websites boardgameprices.co.uk in the UK and boardgameoracle.com in the USA uh, are both basically websites that let you check friendly local game stores for stock of games. Play. I will put links to the moon listings on both those websites in the show notes. We like the moon for it is close to us. And that was the letters of comment. Thank you very much, everyone who wrote in. Oh, we should note, Duncan McGregor also really enjoyed Titanium Noir. I I am going to read it, but, you know, when I find time. Last but not least, Dave Coxon uh, posted on our Facebook to thank us for the birthday shout-out. He's still listening to every episode, uh, even though his SF status is noob. Uh, he enjoys the discussions and debates about gaming, books and movies. He may not fully appreciate all elements of the podcast, but he enjoys the debates and how we articulate ourselves. We're a well-balanced panel. It, it's it, it, The balancing is you just make sure that you're all the appropriate distance away from the middle of the seesaw and then it, it goes well. That was a joke about physics. Yeah, sometimes I find that if I'm on a seesaw with somebody, sometimes it needs to be quite a big seesaw. <laughs> And that's the name of the episode. Um, Okie dokie. Thanks to everyone who wrote in. Hello. You are here to talk about TAF. I am. For those listening who may not be aware, do you want to give us a very brief explanation of what TAF might be? With the greatest of pleasure, John. Yes. TAF stands for transatlantic fan fund there are many fan funds and have been for a while but taff is the oldest of them all um and it exists to send a european fan to north america or conversely a north american fan to europe in order to attend a convention generally the world con or an easter con though i as it happens it was the first ever delegate not to attend a North American World Con because there wasn't one, see Chengdu, in earlier discussions. The point of the fan fund is that it is, effectively, it is crowdfunding, except that it's been going since before crowdfunding was really a thing. Kind fans donate their time, their money, their curios and their you know collectibles to and they get auctioned at conventions or online in order to raise the dough. And once that has been raised, then some lucky person gets to go and, you know, experience fandom on the other side of the Atlantic. And this year, that was me. Way. 
and you went to Pemicon, if I'm not much mistaken. I did. And you jolly well knew that, so don't, 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 yeah, don't indulge in figures of speech. <laughs> and, and, and does this, does this marvellous prize come with any form of a downside, Sandra? <laughs> uh, well, that depends on whether you enjoy the, the, the administrative trivia of having to run the thing after you get back home. I am starting to take up the reins of running it. This, this has its good points and its bad points, but, we will see what happens now that things are getting, you know, getting underway again in earnest. Because next year in 2024, the Transatlantic Fan Fund is expecting to send the North American fan to the Glasgow Worldcon. Cheers, cheers, cheers! Ooh. Yeah, I, I shall be in charge of the European end of trying to make sure that that happens without any snags. I'm sure it will go swimmingly. Glasgow are fans of the fan funds, as it were. They're 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 kind of right thinking sort of folks. So very much so. And in fact, Glasgow has appointed a fan funds coordinator. Indeed, they have. Who is the very lovely Jerry Sullivan? I'm I'm going to be talking to Jerry on on behalf of Guff with Sandra for Taff and I guess other people who are interested in the fan funds. Um, when we're going to be setting up started to talk about what Glasgow is going to do for fan funds um there will also be as well as the although TAF has, has announced their race I'm hoping Guff will have announced its race by the time we um uh, by the time this episode comes out but it might not quite have but very soon Guff will also be announcing that there's going to be a race from Australia New Zealand or or islands in that area to um to Glasgow for the for the 2024 Worldcon yeah and I do want to say that the Glasgow committee have been exemplary in their support. As Alison says, they've appointed a fan fund liaison to try and make sure that the TAF and Gough winners, you know, everything goes smoothly for them. They've also confirmed you know, hospitality and, you know, hotel arrangements, etc., which, in my understanding, this early in the game is almost unheard of. So bravo Glasgow, I say. Thank you very much, Glasgow. You're excellent. It's quite the coincidence that both fan funds are sending delegates to the same convention. That's a happy accident. Well, I mean, not really, given that that convention is the European Worldcon. Well, it's ex- exactly so. I think we have done that every time. I mean, maybe not every time, but certainly for Dublin and Helsinki and Luncon. And, and my memory of fan funds doesn't really go back farther than that. Yeah, every every now and again, things have to be tweaked very slightly to make that work. For instance, there was no fan tra- no TAF race in 1978 because they wanted to save it for 1979 to send a an American fan to the Brighton Worldcon, as indeed they did, and it was the late Terry Hughes. Where where TAF is concerned, there tend there tend to be two different kinds of race. Either you get a ton of people all clamouring to stand and having to vote against each other, or you get tumbleweeds blowing around and then the administrator has to go around poking at people with a stick saying, you want to stand, don't you? But the fact that it is going to a World Con rather than an Easter Con next year, I hope, will make, you know, make it more likely to be the first kind of race than the second, as far as I'm concerned as admin, because... It makes life a lot easier if the candidates come out of the bush themselves and stand rather than having to be chased up. Yeah, that makes sense. 
you mentioned jerry sullivan uh was the co fan fund what was the title you said fan fund coordinator that's that's what i believe her her role is titled yes jerry of course is a former tap winner herself and i believe she is about to relaunch her fanzine idea and it's going to have a very special feature in it yes um Jerry has not published a fanzine for over twenty years, but she has, you know, taken, you know, she has now taken up that gauntlet once again, and is as we are recording the release of the new issue of Idea is supposedly imminent. Oh, and the very special feature, and the very special feature, if you can so call it, you flatterer, is that it's got the first chapter of my TAF report in. One thing about fan funds is that it is generally considered the done thing for a delegate after they've you know got home and had a a reasonable time to recover um, that they will write up a trip report of everything that they did and saw and engaged in that's actually printable. <laughs> Hollow laugh there from John. Um, Definitely don't want a report of everything you did and saw on a trip report. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, you know, there, you know, there are some bits that need a veil drawn over them for, for the sake of modesty or simple kindness. But <laughs> on, on the whole, yes, more often than not, you know, the report, you know, a report will get will get written either in one lump or in several serialized ones. I have taken the latter approach to it on the grounds that fandom nowadays. Is such an enormous and diverse community that by serialising it across different places, it has a larger chance that at least one episode will come to the attention of more fans than if I just put out one booklet. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Jerry is actually the fan funds liaison. Oh. I-, I thought you meant that the very special feature was the article that I've got on in Idea. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's an exercise left for the reader as to... It's the article about how I met Stephen that I think um, John's already seen. Oh, it's a very good article. It's been to a few places because I kind of snuck it out bit by bit rather than kind of give it to a fancy editor straight away. I want it on the record that there is a line in that article where you note that it passes two to one with one abstention. And I think I was the one. So when you read it... I think you might have been. <laughs> note that, listeners, note that. But Sandra has very kindly agreed to take us through part of the chapter, which um, is to do with her time in Canada. Yes, um, I, I, should, I should perhaps also have clarified that I'm not writing this in order because Jerry was my first host when I arrived in North America. And if I'd written it in chronological order, I would have ended up writing a chapter largely about Jerry Sullivan for Jerry Sullivan. And that seemed a little awkward. So I've, I've started off by jumping forwards and writing up Pemicon. And yeah. Alison, I had no idea, I'm afraid, this has come out of left field to me that you have a piece in idea. I look forward to reading it. But I bet you any money my piece is longer than yours. Yeah, how long is your piece? I don't know how long my piece is. I mean, my, my piece is about six hours long. Yeah, yeah. the official length of my piece is too long. <laughs> but yes, but yes, the piece I'm going to be reading out on this here very episode of Octoform, what it is, is 
basically deals with the day after I left Pemicon. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, I don't actually know the answer to this question, which is dreadfully bad form as an interviewer. You're supposed to know the answer to every question you ask, right? But are you planning to do a compiled version of the report after it's kind of been published elsewhere? Absolutely, I am, yes. Um, I think you know people who do serialise their reports and then actually get, get it finished do tend to then produce a one-volume edition afterwards. But obviously enough, you know, that's a, that is a... And an endeavour for a future occasion. At the moment, you know, I have various people who have asked me for for an instalment, and I've said yes to them all. Ulrich O'Brien, Nick Farre, Mark Plummer, and Claire Briley are getting one because Banana Wings is coming out again regularly. They say, "Hooray, hooray, hooray, hooray!" Oh, it's possible that um, Claire will be listening to this episode on Thursday um, because she's going to be. At, in hospital, having a little day operation that day. So we should wish her all lots of lo- send lots of love in case she's listening or Mark is listening and hope everything goes well. Yes, absolutely. Octo- o- Octothorpe, you know, wishes you, you know, you know the, the, the swiftest and quick and most painless recovery possible. Yes, it does. So if you enjoy... Uh, what Sandra reads, uh, you can look up her full TAF report, and when that comes out, we will indubitably talk about it on the podcast. And in the meantime, you can buy her novels, which are very good. Yes, The Devil's Finger and The Psychopath Club, both excellent books. Uh, go and buy them. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, The Psychopath Club was a former pick of the episode on Octo 4. But yeah, so Sandra, take us take us through the world of post Pemicon. So, Octothorpe listeners, I present to you Chapter Six, Part One of my TAF report, whose overall title is "Her Beautiful Mistake," and this chapter's <laughs> chapter's title is "Moose Hats and Medicine Jaws," and it deals with the twenty fourth of July, twenty twenty three. Excellent. Having crammed such of my belongings into my various bags, cases and containers as I could, one small case, one large case, one very small case with CPAP machine, one cardboard box with unsold TAF auction donations from Gary Farber, one tote bag with various goodies from Joyce Scrivener and Diversicon, I headed downstairs. There is an air of sadness emptiness that hangs around a hotel which has just finished hosting a convention, reminiscent of the odour from a pile of vomit in some spot that is unseen but is too near for comfort. That air assorted my nostrils and other senses as I reached the hot lobby. Guests and fish, they say, become obnoxious after three days. So too do conventions. Pemicon was no more, and the constituent parts of it were beginning their diaspora to all parts of the compass. Some of them were still around. I finally found Kurt Gibson again and apologised for not having seen him and Alice during the con after, my, after their kindness in driving me up there. He had, it transpired, seen me, but since he hadn't stepped out in front of me like a traffic cop to stop me, and since I'd been wandering about in a daze as I generally do at any convention, we'd missed our opportunity, alas. Murray Moore and Darth Spencer, who had done so much to make the con bearable for me, were knocking about too. And, oh joy, there were luggage trolleys, a plenty to be had, in stark contrast to the beginning of the con. 
I conveyed my bags to the front door and happily found that the taxi rank, not being organised by Pemicon, actually had taxis in it. I'd almost forgotten that things in Winnipeg could work as they were intended to. I gave the driver the address of the rental car joint at the airport and sat back to watch the scenery pass by. When planning my trip, I'd reasoned that by the time Pemicon ended, I would probably be ready for a few days' break from having to deal with other people in any quantity at a time or for long periods. Save perhaps for the written word format, behind the wheel of a vehicle is the place I feel most secure, content and free. I can assign the driving to the part of my brain that deals with menial tasks and free up the part concerned with higher functions to enjoying the scenery, plotting my writing or wild speculation on the nature of the universe. And I'd found that one-way vehicle rentals no longer appeared to carry the financial penalty that I was used to being attached before Covid had given the rental car business a kicking. So my plans allowed me three days to drive to British Columbia, play tourist and kick back before flying from Calgary to Las Vegas and once more plunging into the swirls of Fanish partying. Multiple people, the most insistent of them being Farah Mendelssohn, than whom few do insistent better, <laughs> had urged me that if I was in the westerly parts of Canada, I should upon no account miss the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Drumheller, home to countless dinosaur fossils and related attractions. And I decided to make that my next point of call. Sure, I could have flown in far less time, but where, I asked an imaginary interlocutor, was the fun in that? The car was acquired without hitch, luggage loaded aboard, and the westward road, the Trans-Canada Highway indeed, beckoned. I missed a turn on my way out, but little did I care, especially since, in finding my way back to the TCH, I discovered that Winnipeg boasts a suburb named Tuxedo. It was wonderful. I was free. I passed across the psychological barrier, of Winnipeg's ring road and pulled my chariot into a truck stop not far beyond in Headingley. Over breakfast at a Denny's, I didn't know they had those in Canada, I used their Wi-Fi to plan my day. Drumheller, as I already knew, was certainly not achievable in one day. I traced the TCH with my finger across the map. Originally I planned to spend the night in or around Regina, but all the hotels there were either unreasonably expensive or got vile reviews on TripAdvisor. And I had, got off to, I had got off to such an efficient early start that time for once was on my side. I let my finger wander on westward. After Regina, everywhere was smaller, yet with longer names, as though they sought to make up for their size with extra nomenclature. Bell Plain, Moose Jaw, Swift Current, Gold Lake, Maple Creek, Medicine Hat. Thinking of future me writing this report, I decided that a night in a place with a silly name was just what was called for. I checked my watch. Yes, Moose Jaw looked just about right. Decent hotels at affordable rates, craft beer bars with positive write-ups, and I had a book back home called Beauty Tips from Moose Jaw by Will Ferguson that I had enjoyed. And furthermore, I ought to just about be make, able to make it there on the full tank of gas that had come with my rental. I'd finished breakfast and was itching to be back on the road. I hastily pulled out my credit card, hit backspace a few times in my browser to reach a hotel I thought looked promising, and booked a room for one night. My heart was feather light now as I strode out of the Denny's and hit the road once more. I'd been warned that between Winnipeg and British Columbia, there was a whole lot of flat nothing. I didn't care. All around me, the horizons did their best to surrender their claim on the name and retreat out of sight. The few other cars on the road bore license plates in ornate script, which at first I read as finally Manitoba, 
before I finally figured them to be friendly, Manitoba. The divided highway stretched on ahead, reaching out for the elusive horizon, never quite touching it. For the sheer hell of it, I stuck to the old road rather than taking the bypass around my first silly long name of the day, Portage La Prairie. No need to stop, I had road snacks and energy drinks from the truck stop at Headingley. The road bore the epithet, Manitoba's Highway of Heroes. I felt like a hero myself, and I felt happy. Britain's roads are crowding, twisted and confining. Manitobas are a joy. A comfort break at Kirkella, and I was across the border into Saskatchewan. If Saskatchewan isn't a swear word, it ought to be. Bill Watterson. <laughs> the boundary made no appreciable difference to the road or to the scenery. A sandwich for lunch from a gas station at Whitewood. Onward, onward, west, west, west. Near Capel, something shot across my vision. I dabbed the brakes by instinct before realising it was... I could hardly believe the aptness of it. An actual lonesome tumbleweed. <laughs> I took the bypass around Regina to the south. Like Croydon, they built three quarters of a ring road and then given up before completing the final 25%. To my right, the city's tall buildings loomed like a child's building blocks, incongruous in the prairie flatness. Not far now to Moose Jaw. A pair of eyes met mine from the short grass at the roadside. Fox, I thought for a second, but the colour was all wrong. A moment's hasty thought made me revise my opinion to Wolf. No, surely not. Not so close to the road and not alone. Also, its features were leaner and more angular than a wolf's, its nose longer. A coyote. I'd seen an actual honest-to-God coyote in the wild. Could it be long before I spied a roadrunner? The main highway skirts past Moose Jaw at an oblique angle. I veered left onto the old main road and down into Moose Jaw. Everything around me was small-town suburb, neat and pretty at first. Closer to the centre of town, I was reminded of certain small towns about this far west in the USA. Venerable, weathered, but still sturdy brick buildings, housing some old businesses, but more newer ones. A huge expanse of railroad sidings spread across my leftward vision. I drifted from street to street, idly looking for a parking spot. I was in no hurry. I was relaxed. Everything was good. I congratulated past me on having made such wide choices. A bar hove into sight on one side. Rosie's on River Street. Hey, I'd seen that on my tablet back in Manitoba. It got good TripAdvisor reviews. And indeed, it had an attractive air with plenty of tables outside and people tucking into meals at them. I found a parking lot that would become free in ten minutes. I could have paid or chanced it, but again, I was in no rush. I waited for the clock to tick to the end of paid parking and strolled back up the street to Rosie's. I ordered a beer and a meal and unhurriedly enjoyed them both at an outside table, watching Moose Javians pass by and admiring the local architecture. I was tempted to order a second beer from their pleasantly designed pint glasses, but reminded myself that I still needed to find the hotel before I could stop driving for the evening. Hey, I could always walk back after I checked in, right? <laughs> <laughs> Foreshadowing. I pulled out my tablet to check the address of my hotel and nearly spat out a wasteful mouthful of that excellent beer. I had, in a moment of inattention, booked myself into a hotel, not in Moose Jaw, but in Medicine Hat, 250 miles away. <laughs> Four hours further westward, and it was already past seven o'clock in the evening. Oh no. The sip of beer I hadn't spat out suddenly tasted flat and sour in my mouth. 
And at that point, I shall break off this extract. No, but what happens now, Sandra? Oh no, no, but what happens? We don't know what happens. It's a cliffhanger. You know, leave, leave me sitting there in moose, moose jaw on a cliffhanger. To, say, to find out what happened next, you will have to read the, you know, the next bit of my report. Ah, oh, well, fair enough. You know how to, you know how to leave them wanting more. Choose your own adventure. <laughs> um, so yes, that was great. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, very, very good. We'll wait till we hear the next. So the next, where are you publishing this extract? Where should we expect to see it? Yeah, the the, the full chapter of which you've just heard an extract. This has not quite been finalised for definite yet, but I, but probably going to appear in the fanzine Beam from Nick Fari and Ulrika O'Brien. If he doesn't appear there, then they, cert- they they are certainly going to get a chapter, but I'm expecting that, that, that this will be this one. Fair enough. Excellent. But, but, but if you want to keep up to date with anything to do with the Transatlantic Fan Fund or my report or anything else that appertains to it, go to taf.org.uk and you will find everything that you need to know and probably some stuff that you didn't. That is a good way of putting it. Taft.org.uk is presumably run by Mr. Langford. Indeed, Dave Langford is one of long-term heroes. He's been, you know, he was the TAF winner in 1980. Is that right? A long, long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away. I can still remember when that music... Uh, <laughs> yes, but, but yeah, he has been doing great things for TAF. You know, he has on that site many of them written by rob hansen a few of them not yes lots and lots of really excellent books um and actually a few rubbish ones but you know you can't have everything can you (laughs) but no lots of extremely good fanish content there some of the very best collections of fandom anywhere are available for free download in exchange for a donation to taff yes and 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 sandra was indeed correct Dave Langford did indeed win TAF in 1980. Yeah, and I will also mention, whilst we're talking about the chap, that his trip report, which is the transatlantic hearing aid, is one of the absolute paragons of the genre, and it's one to which I had frequent reference when planning mine. You know, I'm I will not I will not set myself up as being able to write half as wittily as Dave, but you know, in my own little way, I you know I'm trying. Very trying. Uh... <laughs> the oldies are the goodies. Excellent stuff. Thank you very much for reading out, and I will look forward to it appearing in Beam. Do we want to have a kind of chat about fan funds generally? And I guess the big question is why are fan funds still relevant here in 2023 we can get on zoom and chat to people all over the world we can we have hundreds or thousands of people attending conventions across the atlantic why is it still a good idea to have a fan fund well i can i can give you you know an answer whether it's the answer i don't know i think there are as with most things in fandom there are several interlocking causes and reasons but most but fan funds have been going, as I mentioned earlier, for a long, long time, for longer than any of us have been in fandom. As, as the saying goes, once something's been done twice in fandom, it's a tradition. So after something's been done in fandom for 50 times, 
well, you know, it's it's absolutely graven in stone, isn't it? I do think, and this is this is partly me being flippant, but I do think there is also the aspect that nobody wants to be the administrator who says, well, isn't it about time that we wrap this up because everyone who's wants wants to have won this fund has already won it. I don't think that's the I, I don't think that's the case at all. To be just to clarify, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think for my part, my answer is that as long as people want to, as long as people want to stand, and as long as people want to vote, then then it'll keep going. And and in some ways, I think the question of of why is kind of a- almost a bit by by the by because. I'm not interested in telling people they've got to stop. Mm. I mean, I don't think they should stop. I think it's good that they do it. But even if you don't, they're going to do it anyway. Funds, and I'm speaking here for TAF in particular, which, you know, because it's the one that I, you know, I'm the one who I'm currently trying to juggle things for. Um, Go back to the time when transatlantic travel was not just the sort of thing you could just whip out a credit card and book a flight. You know, the, the first few TAF delegates travelled by ocean ship. And, not, and we're not talking a sort of luxury cruise here. We're talking, you know, they sort of crammed into a cabin on a sort of tramp steamer type thing and got across on the cheap. Yeah. Fandom around the world, you know, used to be almost entirely conducted by mail between North America and Europe and Europe and Australia and Australia and North America. And obviously there was a great deal of enthusiasm back in the early days for members of one fandom to meet representative members of another. And I do think that is still the case, even though, you know, it's so much easier to make a trip under your own steam these days. There is still something about being a TAF delegate or a GUF delegate or any, you know, any fan fund delegate where it's not just an honour, but you, but it also means you, you get to represent the fandom that you've come from and you get to tell people about it in convention programming and social media and it helps to bind fandom closer together and obviously fandom is a great deal larger and more disparate and diverse now than it was in the earliest days of fan funds but you know it's like the apps that's had two new heads and three new handles it's still fandom yeah yeah that's fair very much so and that's a good way of putting it I think it does help to um, bring fandom together. I certainly did a lot of Zooms in 2020 that had a lot of fans from both Europe and Australia at them. And, and these people hadn't met before. They, they were often people that they had contacted online and they knew the names of, but they were seeing on Zoom for the first time. When I went out, obviously, I met a lot of people for the first time, including many people that, I'd, that had just been legends to me, like, like Robin Johnson and Lee Evans, who's now a correspondent to Octothorpe, of course. Um, but also, in at least one city, I organised gatherings and there were people there who didn't know each other because I just kind of reached out to everyone I knew in that city. And some of them, <laughs> they weren't necessarily moving in the same bits of fandom. They were all people I happened to know from all the various different things that I've done. So, I mean, I think it, it, it's it's just it's one of the things that basically says in a very public way, fandom is a community and this is these trips are one of the ways that we celebrate the fact that it's a global community of of people. It is not just about adulating the people who are writing books and making TV shows. It is also about getting together with other fans because those people are interesting in their own right. Yeah. Um, by, and by the same token, Alison, you know, at Pemicon, which you'll be able to read in the chapter in Idea, I met a couple of people from Las Vegas who were grumbling 
that they didn't know of any other fans in Las Vegas. Wow. <laughs> oh, I said, have you have you spoken to the right person? I said, and in another in another week's time, those two were invited to and attended the the Taft party in Las Vegas and met all the Las Vegas fans that I already knew. Taft and other and other fan funds do still serve to you know introduce people who ought to know each other but somehow haven't met, met yet. This is why Spanier and I have started the Newcastle First Thursday group because I think there's one of the things that in-person meetings still do best, even even locally, is there's a chap who has started coming to that um, called Andy. Hello, Andy, if you're listening. And, you know, he doesn't know anyone else who would be up for going for a, to a convention. Like, he, he knows other science fiction nerds, but they're not particularly fussed about the idea of, like, going to a con. But now he, like, knows us all, and a lot of us go to cons. If he goes to a con, he'll have people there he recognises. Because I, I think going to a convention where you know you'll know literally no one is very daunting, um, or going to a gathering where you know you'll where you know you'll know literally no one. But but trying to do those those smaller, more low key gatherings is a good way of trying to overcome that. I think. Um, so I think there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot here, um, as it were. Well, the thing about so much of fandom happening in an online or a virtual environment these days is that it is actually possible in a way that it was. A lot harder to be in the past, to be in a in a city or an urban area where there are lots of other fans, but you just don't happen ever to have come across them. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And yeah, and and all three of us who obviously have all been past or current fan fund delegates, you know, we, you know, we've all just given our own examples of of this kind of thing. So yes, um, fan funds are one of the specimens of glue that helps to bind fandom together, like the poly cement of fandom basically hanging out with people is good shall we do picks oddly enough you know, I, I i dropped a hint earlier that taft has you know amongst its many attractions on taft.org.uk a slew of ebooks which you can download in return for a donation and the newest one of these is going to be my pick for the episode. Ooh. It is called Beyond Fandom, Fans, Culture and Politics in the 20th Century, edited by Rob Hansen, for it is he. Now, I must say that that subtitle makes it sound as if it's trying to be an academic book, which I think does it no favours. But on the other hand, you know, it does pretty much sum up basically what Rob has done in this book. He has taken over two dozen fans from the earliest days of fandom up until the turn of the current century, all of whom became famous for something other than what you might expect a science fiction fan to become famous for. So, for instance, Michael Moorcock and Robert Silverberg aren't in the book because tons of fans have become professional science fiction writers after having started off in fandom. But what he has dog up are people who've achieved fame outside this. So there's one of America's leading jazz journalists. There was the, the, pub, the editor and publisher of America's first ever lesbian magazine. There was the guy who founded the newspaper Mersey Beat, which had John Lennon writing a column for it immediately before the Beatles suddenly became worldwide famous. 
the founders of CND, the you know the, the musicians, the music mogul, the guy who promoted early punk bands, the Pope's astronomer. You know, did you know that the Pope's astronomer was a science fiction fan? Well, I've had dinner with him. Well, oh, Alison, you've always got to one up me, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, but Brother Guy does come to conventions. You should keep an eye out for him at them. He's very entertaining and interesting. But yes, but but yeah, this book, you know, Rob has written large chunks of it. There are also, as often with Rob's books, fairly hefty chunks from period sources to prove that this is this is this is actually you know, what was written about it at the time. It's in thirty-one different chapters, so it's the sort of book you dip in and out of at leisure and. That is my pick for the for the episode's recommendation. Lovely stuff. I shall have to look out for that. <clears throat> no, the free books the free ebooks is generally a very good thing. There are so many things on there um, that it can be a bit daunting. So it's good good to have a sort of window or a, or a way in that's a bit more accessible than just the entire wall of of titles. Alison, do you want to do your pick? Uh yes. So my pick, I. Don't think I, I, I have been, so people have been saying to me for approximately um, four seasons now, Alison, you really should be watching For All Mankind because it is right up your street. And I've been going, oh, yes, I'm going to get round to it. And I have now got round to it. And for those people who've been watching the glacial pace at which we watched The Expanse, I should say that on current viewing speed, we are going to catch up with the latest episode of For All Mankind in less than a week. <laughs> so, so, um, it clearly is is hitting a nerve for me. Um, I'm one of these people who thinks that um, historical um, dramas about space exploration um, are not science fiction and should not appear on science fiction award ballots. Um, but this doesn't. This is a historic. This is an alt historical drama about space travel, and so it's completely fine. It is obviously science fiction, um, and I. It is for people who don't know a. Um, an alternative history where, as a result of a change that happens in the mid sixties, um, the Soviet space program is just a little bit more effective than it was in reality, and as a result of that, the space race continues with some verve, much for much longer than it did in our timeline. And the creator Ron Moore is the was creator of Battlestar Galactica, the reboot. And he, I read an interview with him where, or I listened to an interview with him where he said that people of his sort of age, which is also my sort of age, because we are very nearly the same age, have an existential tragedy in our lives. This is nerds of our age, um, in that we grew up believing that there was going to be a massive space exploration program and that we were just witnessing the start of it. And then it didn't happen. So this is really a television show about what might happen if that tragedy had been averted. <laughs> And a space program does happen. And obviously, there's quite a lot of other stuff going on in the show. It is not merely a space exploration show. Every time you read a Reddit thread about this show, there are people there going, this would be a much better show if they cut out all the messy people stuff and just had the space stuff and the space danger. We like space danger. That is what we watch for. And there is plenty of space danger, but there's also a lot of ordinary drama plots some of which are ramped up quite a lot so they are they tend to be very high stakes drama and it feels a bit like extremely excessive soap opera sometimes that you see that are, that are or telenovelas that 
a development happens and you go, well, that is absolutely bananas. That you know, in order for that to happen, so many people have to have done things that are very stupid. And like any television show, the writing is not always. In some episodes, the writing is and acting and everything is absolutely first rate. And in other episodes, you go, oh, they kind of didn't quite deliver enough to let us believe that moment. So it is not perfect, but it is generally amazing um and i'm i'm absolutely loving it it's like catnip for me i, I love all the spe- I, there's a point very early on where there's apollo 11 and and you realize that this is an alternate history and they might not land safely and you go oh oh wait you know he may be about to kill them all off gosh you you intrigue me alison i you know i never watch anything on television oh it's great yeah, but, yeah, in part because I, I have prosopagnosia, which makes it rather awkward for me to keep track of which character is which. But you actually you know, make this sound so interesting that I may have to give it a go. If any, if if, if Alison says that something has verve, then verve it jolly well has, is my experience. <laughs> it has. T- it also has time skips. So the first series starts in 1969 and carries on till I think about 1974, and then the second series skips forward to about 1995, and then the third series is in the early 80s. So see, he's kind of catching up in the same way as I'm catching up with his show. Um, so, and I have watched all the way to the end of season three, and season three's finale was um, shocking. But then, so was season two's finale and season one's finale. So, you know, you keep going. Well, how are they going to top this? And, and as I said, sometimes it's sometimes it's over the top. So sometimes it does go. Uh, it, it it has moments that strain credulity. Hang on, science fiction where credulity is strained. That seems very unlikely. But it's funny because my dis- my disbelief suspenders never snap when they're kind of exploring or whatever, but they do snap when it's kind of, and here is the way that this relationship between these two people has progressed. And I'm like, oh no, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, I will say, I think, so I do think there is a common misconception that relationships between people make sense because I do often <laughs> see people complaining about things and I'm like, I have relationships in my life that make less sense than that. Uh. Yes, no, well, well, indeed. And I think one of the things that this this show makes me think about is that most of us have experiences in our past that could have been absolutely catastrophic for one reason or another. Mm. And because we were probably lucky, they weren't. Um, <laughs> or, or, you know, they were only somewhat, yeah? And... One of the things that happens in this show is that some things that are the sorts of things that people actually do in real life quite often, they just kind of explore the natural consequences of that and its catastrophic. And and because Ron Moore designed the entire series before he started, he went to Apple and said, give me a ton of money and I'll make you six seasons, maybe seven, you know, and he's got a plan. And so we've just got to the end of season three and there is something that has happened at the end of season three in this final episode. And it's like, oh, that's why that character had that name. And you go, so at the point where they were designing the show and casting people, they'd clearly got this beat in the show planned in three seasons down the line where they were going to go, oh, right, and this is a par- cause this is an alternate universe parallel with something that happened in our timeline. So they weren't all just making it up as they went along. Indeed, but to an amazing degree. And, that, and, and even, even good television actually doesn't often do this as well as it ought to do. 
So, um, and the other point I wanted to say about it is it's on Apple TV Plus. I know I keep saying this. I've been saying for God knows how many episodes that Apple TV Plus is a fiver a month. It turns out it's not. It's eight ninety nine. Sorry, guys. Apparently, apparently inflation happened and prices went up when I wasn't looking. No, it's it's a very good show. I have I am behind um, because I find it very difficult to watch, but it is very good, and I do enjoy it. Uh, it, it is it is petrifying. I mean, bits of it are real behind the sofa stuff. Um, happy anniversary, Doctor Who. Yes. Behind the behind the sofa stuff for grown ups. Yes. <laughs> the, the, and actually, the scene I'm mostly thinking of that I really wanted to be able to turn the TV off and not watch was set on Earth. <laughs> Didn't involve any spacecraft. I am going to not. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna spin off something you said in your or or you. You don't think historical drama about space travel is science fiction, or you. You say it's not. Fanny and I have been recently talking about this, and I think that space travel is so wrapped up in the history of the genre that it kind of got grandfathered in, in that it doesn't really make any sense that people consider it part of the genre. But it very definitely still feels like it is. Well, do you remember, John, all the kerfuffle when Apollo 13 came out and people kept trying to nominate it for, for the awards and for the science, in the science fiction genre and, people, and other people were saying, but it's not science fiction, it's a documentary. <laughs> and like I say, I, I, I mean, I can see the point, but equally... I can see the point, but equally I do think that space travel did eventually get sort of grandfathered into the genre because it is so so wrapped up with the early early science fiction all this to say that my pick is a city on mars by uh, kelly and zach wienersmith uh, if you've heard of zach wienersmith he is the person who draws saturday morning breakfast cereal which is a web comic um, kelly is his wife and is a noted bacteriologist i think a biologist of some description if liz was here she'd be annoyed that i don't know but she's not so i can run free and they've written a book about space settlement and it is it is absolutely excellent and i will be probably nominating it in best related work uh because it is a very good look at what it would take to get to the sort of future that for instance for all mankind is positing and exploring some of the issues with that partly the issues in terms of like the physics but also issues that are a bit more esoteric and perhaps aren't quite as well uh, considered by the sort of space nerd that tends to talk about these things for instance the I mean, starting with the biology of it all, um, but then moving on to things like the considerations of international space law and how that would affect uh, these things. And it's just really, really uh, interesting. And I really loved it. Um, so I devoured it uh, and I would highly recommend it to anyone with a with an interest in in you know our future in the stars well or if possibly it, you know, put the it, lack thereof put, put your put your copy up for sale for taff and we, you know we could advertise it as being having john coxon's genuine bite marks you devoured it <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i i'm happy to bite a book and then put it on uh to put it on sale but it does mean that if i ever die there's like a record of what my teeth look like so that's probably useful don't you go to the dentist regularly? Well, yeah, but I don't know if they know what my teeth look like. Do you think they've made a model? Yeah, teeth teeth are like are like bullets. Every everyone and fingerprints. Every everyone has their own 
unique, you know, bite mark. Indeed, indeed, yes. Can I, can I, can I, can I jam one more small piece in before we wrap everything up? Um, this is something that I've been reminded of by total happenstance because Somebody has just posted, well, I'll, I'll name him, it's Nigel Rowe has just posted about it. The very, very first British transatlantic fan fund winner was a fan called Vince Clark. He, he was the winner in 1954. Unfortunately, he lost his job at a crucial time. And because the fan fund was only very new, that meant he couldn't afford to go. And Vince never made it to America. In 1987, Vince was one of the first fans I met when I was when I discovered fandom and did more than any other fan, probably, to make sure that I actually stayed around. I think it's fair to say that without him, I wouldn't be sitting here doing this recording with you today. And as it happens, today marks the 25th anniversary to the day of Vince's death. And I just want to want to say I don't know what Vince would have made of the whole concept of a podcast, but I you know I think it's entirely in keeping that you know that we give the man a mention. He was the loveliest man ever. I I would second that, and in fact, when I did my very first fanzine, which was the sort of rather pathetic crudzine that that people do when they do their very first fanzine before we started doing Plockta, um, Vince wrote me an extremely lovely letter saying how much he'd enjoyed it um which i took which greatly encouraged me at the time but of course a long time later i could go well i'm sh- actually vince was very good at saying that to all of the new fanheads and i'm sure that he would be equally enthusiastic about um about podcasts and other modern things of fandom because he was indeed a very very lovely person hmm. it's very very grateful for that letter which did indeed encourage me to do fanzines yeah thanks for letting me jam that in alison and john 25 years. I know, it doesn't seem possible. <laughs> Time, innit? Time's winged chariot. Yada, yada. One day you'll have somebody older than me on the podcast, if there are any left. But today is not that day. I'm not that much younger than you. I don't think you're that much younger than me, but I think you are younger than me. To be fair, I think next time we record, we'll have someone older than you on the pod. What, me? You mean me? Yeah, yeah, because you'll be older. Oh, thank you, John. That's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> is that good you're older than you've ever been and now you're even older <laughs> we can't clear the rights Sandra stop singing um, right that was the Octothought podcast and it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me Thank you very much indeed, Sandra. You've been a great stunt, Liz. Did we actually say stunt, Liz, at any point? No, we just ploughed straight on. Uh, you can go back and go back and edit it in. <laughs> thank you for ha- thank you for thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. The theme music for this episode was "Fanfare for Space" by Kevin McLeod in Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. Right, this podcast will end at the beep. Beep.